Burning Books with Eric Beckrubin. Hello and welcome to episode 31, Whoa, Who Knew, of the Burning Books podcast, where we discuss, celebrate, and explore great books, very good books, books in which there's something to appreciate or admire, as well as books that are the opposite of all those things. Today we have an out-of-the-way find of a book. The title, The German Mujahid, was translated from the French, whose original title was, in full, The Village of the German, or The Journal of the Brothers Schiller. The author is Boilem Sansal, a novelist decorated in France and Europe, though not at all in his native Algeria, where he still lives. The book was initially published in 2008 and translated into English the following year by Frank Wynne, who does a first-rate job. Oh, and it's been brought out again under a new and more distant title, An Unfinished Business. Maybe one day they'll go with the original, The Journal of the Brothers Schiller, because that's the one that says it best. But in the meantime, this is what we got, so allons-y. I first came across the title, The German Mujahid, when it was recommended by the author Paul Berman in his book, The Flight of the Intellectuals. That book is an essay on, broadly speaking, the problems of liberalism in a time of fanaticism. And I picked it up because it looked closely at one of the most prominent figures at the crossroads of these two conflicting forces, a Swiss-born scholar of Islamism, which can roughly be defined as the movement to order society according to the laws of Islam, whose name is Tariq Ramadan. I remember having read about Ramadan a number of years previous in a New York Times Magazine article by Ian Baruma, with whom I don't always agree, but who is always exploring interesting subjects. In any case, Ramadan, a hard man to pin down in Baruma's formulation, was a character who intrigued me, and this led me to Berman's Flight of the Intellectuals, which in turn directed me to the author Boilem Sansal. And there's your flowchart. In The Flight of the Intellectuals, Berman paraphrases an interview of Sansal by the Nouvel Observateur where Sansal explains how his novel, rather incredibly, is based on a true story. One day in the 1980s, he was traveling through the Sétif region of Algeria, he, in this case, being Sansal, and he stumbled upon a strangely European-looking village. He stopped to ask about the village, and he heard a story about an old German soldier from the Second World War, an officer of the SS. After the war, the officer made his escape to Egypt, and then was sent to Algeria by Nasser to offer his military expertise to the Algerians in their war of independence against the French. The officer decided to settle down. He, too, converted to Islam. His contribution to the war won the admiration of his new Algerian neighbors. Then again, the neighbors admired him also because of his past. In broad terms, the novel is the story of this German, his wartime experience, his post-war life, as well as how it has affected his two sons, who relate this past to the reader. The brothers' names tell some of the story. There's the elder brother, Rachel, which is an amalgam of Rashid and Helmut, and the younger brother, Malric, a combination of Malik and Ulrich. Although resonating within that name, Malric is the name of the Italian novelist Curzio Malaparte, Malaparte was the opposite of Bonaparte, and Malarch is very much the opposite of Rachel. Unlike the assimilated, financially independent, hardworking, but sensitive, and therefore perceived as effeminate, Rachel, 
The younger Malrich is a self-described, self-confessed, tough guy and motherfucker. Malrich doesn't have a job. He isn't looking for one either. He sponges off friends of his parents, themselves impoverished, and lives on the brutal social housing estate at the edge of Paris, the infamous banlieue that Rachel worked so hard to leave behind. In all this, though, Malrich is no less morally upstanding, intelligent, curious, or brave than his older brother. And as a character, he is the more interesting of the two Schillers. The action of the novel is relayed through the two journals written by Rachel and Malrich. Rachel's journal is written first, and excerpts from it are included in Malrich's later journal. The reason Malrich obtains his older brother's journal, which is a lot like a diary, insofar as it is a document of private reflection, is that in 1996, at the time Malrich begins his journal, Rachel is dead, by his own hand. He has gassed himself to death in the garage of his house. And it's with this news, and Malrich's hyperventilated reaction to it, that the novel begins. In this first paragraph, we have Malrich's reaction to the news, which was delivered to him by Rachel's ex-wife, Ophélie, as well as a description of the brothers' positions relative to each other. I didn't know about any of this shit. I was a kid. I was 17. And when that something in his head snapped, I was into all sorts. I didn't see much of Rochelle. I steered clear. And he was doing my head in with all his preachifying. He's talking about Rochelle's obsession with their father's wartime past. I don't like to say it. I mean, he was my brother. But when someone goes all self-righteous on you like that, it does your head in. He had his life. I had mine. He had this big job with this giant American company. He had the girl, the house, the car, the credit cards. Every second of his day accounted for. Me? I was zoning around H24 with the dregs of the estate. The H24 estate is classed SUA1, Sensitive Urban Area, Category 1. There's no room to breathe. You stumble out of one fuck up into another. One morning, Ophelia phones me to tell me what's happened. She'd stop by the house to check on her ex. I had this feeling, she said. Momo, he's the son of the halal butcher. He lent me his moped and I bombed down there. There were people milling around everywhere, cops, paramedics, neighbors, rubberneckers. Rochelle was in the garage, sitting on the ground, his back to the wall, legs stretched out, chin on his chest, mouth open. He looked like he was asleep. His face was black with soot. He'd been there all night, bathing in exhaust fumes. He was wearing these creepy striped pajamas I'd never seen before, and his hair was all shaved off like a convict or something. It was freaky. I didn't react. I didn't say anything. I couldn't take it in. This paramedic says, is he your brother? I say, yeah. He said, that's it? That's all you've got to say? I just shrugged and headed into the sitting room. Shortly after, Comdad, the policeman on the beat in the H24 estate where Malrich lives, gives Malrich his older brother's diaries. You should read it, Comdad says. Might knock some sense into you. And this is how the back and forth of this story is initiated. Rachel's diary starts with the news of a massacre in Ain Deb, a small town in Algeria where his parents are, or rather were, living. Word of the massacre, an episode in what is described as the country's ongoing genocide, has trickled to the outskirts of Paris, and when Rachel hears about it, he fears the worst. After pestering authorities at the Algerian embassy, who cannot confirm or deny that Aisha and Hans Schiller are among the dead, Rachel gets a list of the victims and a surprise. 
He recognizes his mother's name in that list, but the person listed with her is Hassan Hans, also known as Sid Murad. It must be a reference to Rachel's father, but the son doesn't recognize either of the names. For that reason, and because he wants to see where his parents died, Rachel undertakes a dangerous trip back to the Bled, as expat Algerians called the old country, B-L-E-D. What Rachel learns over the course of his voyage, first to the Bled and then beyond, is communicated to Malric through his diary. What begins as an attempt to confirm the parents' death turns into an odyssey to discover the father's, Hans Schiller's, past, which leads back through North Africa, Turkey, Germany, and eventually Eastern Europe and the concentration camps where Schiller was part of the machine executing the so-called final solution. That's one part of the story. The other part is Maurick's journal, his record of reading his brother's story and of living his life at the same time. For life does not stop just because Maurick has become engrossed in the enormity of the Holocaust, an event to which, thanks to his father's acts, he now regards himself as directly connected. Maurick's life unfolds on the estate, the projects to North Americans. What's going on in the projects is the encroachment of religious extremists, led by the rather frightening imam that is raising an army of followers whose full-time job is to intimidate others on the estate. Intimidate and do worse. The following is Maurick's description of the fast-moving news of what appears at first to be the disappearance of a girl on the estate, as well as the aftermath of this disappearance. This excerpt shows the power of the estate's ruling extremists and the ways they have warped the larger social systems to their advantage. But it also shows how Malrich, with his newfound knowledge, responds to them. It's a lengthy passage, so buckle up. Momo and Raymond swung by the house and told me some horror story. The fuckers were talking like it was something they saw on TV. I nearly didn't listen when actually it was a real tragedy. And I know all about tragedy. I'm up to my neck in it with Rochelle's diary. And you only come and tell me now, I yelled. The moped was fucked, Momo said. The liar. It was about Nadia, a 16-year-old Arab girl, worked as a trainee at Christelle's salon by the RER station, the Golden Scissors. She'd disappeared. I'm sure I probably knew her, but all those girls look exactly the same, same hair and everything. I can never put a face to a name. They should be forced to wear something so you can tell them apart. Because you never know. I mean, this is the proof. Who's Nadia, I said. Just some girl, Momo says. The fuckwit. She lives in Block 22, Raymond says. Her old man's Musa. Works in the steelworks. You know, the guy who drives the green Ami 6. The men all look the same to me, too. Musa, Abdallah, Arezki, Abdel Ben, some shit. Anyway, you never hardly see them. All they do is work and sleep. They're up at the crack of dawn and working half the night, except Sundays, the Lord's Day, when all they do is hang out in lame cafes, eaten up by nostalgia and gambling on scratch tickets or the horses. Even when you do see them, they're just crooked shadows appearing and disappearing into the darkness. Anyway, the whole estate was mobilized to look for Nadia, parents, kids, police, fire brigade, everyone running around. The women were out on the balconies wailing and praying and yelling at their husbands. At first, everyone said she'd run away. Then they were saying she'd been kidnapped. Since yesterday, they're saying she was murdered. A bunch of TV crews showed up and set up their cameras in the skankiest part of the estate, the sort of no-go area even people on the estate never set foot in. 
Someone said they'd seen some girl getting beat up by some guy with a beard, a young guy from Block 11, some big shot always banging on about how he's been to Kabul and London and Algiers, and calls himself Allah's Terminator. Apparently, he didn't like the way she dressed, didn't like her day-glow hair or the fact she hung out with boys, and not just any boys, kafirs, unbelievers. So he slapped her about, spat in her face, pulled her hair, and yelled, Last warning! It all went down in the stairwell of Block 22, some kid coming downstairs and saw it, and he told his mates, and they told their mates, and so on, until it got back to Musa. Musa didn't stop to think, grabbed a knife, and headed out looking for the guy with the beard. The neighbors grabbed him as he was leaving the block, took away the knife, and marched him off to see Comdad. The two of them had a little chat around the back of the supermarket, no witnesses. The guy with the beard was busted, and 24 hours later, he was out again. No corpse, no crime, no crime, no perp. The Terminator's lawyer, some guy with a beard and a three-piece suit, knew how to play the system. He got to faxing and phoning every association, every Islamic consulate, every brotherhood, every marabout, and every sleeper network, and even woke up the minister for the interior. The sky was black with fax toner and thundering with righteous anger. Comdad was purple with rage when he got a call politely suggesting he release the killer and reopen the mosque in Block 17. Don't rock the boat. The whole city is happy to think she's run away. The Terminator was giving it large about how he'd got his ticket to paradise. Jinnah, they call it in Arabic. Put one over on the cops and heroically confirmed his status as emir of the estate. Then, this morning, shock horror, they find poor Nadia in the basement of some shop that's been boarded up for years, all naked and tied up with barbed wire, her face and body burnt to shit with a blowtorch. The parents identified her straight off. It was their little girl. They just knew it. They put the cuffs on the emir as he was coming out of the mosque. Apparently, he was spitting fire at Comdad. Allahu Akbar, your day will come. The imam immediately announces there's going to be a big service on the esplanade between the tower blocks to honor the hero, support his worthy parents, and raise money for the cause. It's going to be on Friday at 8.30 p.m. And he issued a fatwa saying anyone who doesn't show is a sinner and Allah will not fail to punish them. To forsake a brother in Islam when he's attacked by kafirs is among the greatest of sins. The place will be rammed. I'm planning on being there. It's not some spur-of-the-moment decision. I swore to myself I'd cut the throat of that SS fucker who's trying to turn this estate into an extermination camp. And now's the time. As you can tell from the way Malrick describes the actions of the mob, Rachel's diaries have had an effect on him, just like the father's past had on Rachel. Neither brother can see his world the same way. Everything is viewed through the lens of the Holocaust. For example, we heard earlier how the Algerian terrorists are described as genocidaires, practitioners of genocide. Here we have the jihadists who have come to take over the estate and use it as a recruiting center, described by Malrich as the new SS. In order to enlist a counterforce from among his friends, Maurich must explain to them what the SS was, what he's learned about the genocide of the Jews, a cautionary tale that comes as news to a generation of young people that knows not a thing about Auschwitz, for whom Auschwitz is a new word. The cover of the German Mujahid has the tagline, quote, the first Arab novel to confront the Holocaust, unquote. Were I the kind of person to doubt cover blurbs, I might begin by asking why the German Mujahid is an Arab novel. Perhaps in order to make this point, you'd say that it was by an author from an Arab country. Fine. 
As to whether it's the first author from an Arab country to confront the Holocaust, I can't say it isn't. I'm not an authority. But to get into either of those questions would be missing the point, which is whether confrontation is the correct term. Etymologically, it suggests two parties being brought face to face, literally forehead to forehead. And there is a connotation of defiance in the word. And that, to me at least, is the problem. I don't think either the characters or the author is defiant in dealing with his subject. Rather, interpret seems the more appropriate term in one of the earliest senses of to open up. For that is what this book does. To my mind, it is less a chronicle of the Nazi genocide. It is still less the story of one person's acts during that genocide. And though it does illuminate the existence of a second rat line, this one, instead of funneling war criminals to South America, finds them safe havens in the Arab world. Even that is not the tale here. This is the story of how the Holocaust is remembered and how it is considered or reconsidered by a new generation, one that is removed but, as the plot of this novel suggests, still connected. Neither Rachel nor Maurich knows the father well, neither knew of his past, yet both feel bound to his actions. And this is where I had some difficulty with the German Mujahid. From the moment Rachel hears about his father's past, he seems to fasten himself to it. He recklessly returns to the Bled, to his hometown of Aindeb. He neglects his work in the coming months as he crosses Africa, Asia, and Europe, retracing his father's route, tracking down acquaintances. He neglects his wife to the point where she leaves him, and he neglects himself, wearing himself down physically and psychologically, like a Muslim in one of the camps, ground down to skin and bones before gassing himself in his own garage. Perhaps it's a failure of imagination on my part, and I mean this earnestly, but I did not find Rachel's descent into physical and psychological oblivion plausible. In part, this is because he is introduced as the rational brother. In part, this is because the notion that the sins of the father are grounds for the punishment of the son holds no weight for me. Why does Rachel destroy himself for another's crimes? The more intriguing half of the novel, by some distance, takes place not on the road back to Auschwitz, but in the estate outside Paris. As time progresses, Maurich becomes more single-minded in his determination to fight the jihadis around him, using his father's history and actions as harbinger and guide. There are many who have objected and continue to object to comparing the Holocaust to any other historical event. I have to say I do see the event as unique in history, but that does not preclude us from linking it to others. If the choice is between preserving it as something sacred and untouchable or bringing it into conversation with other historical events, the latter is the only option if we want the history to be remembered for at least some more time. And this is what, to me, Sansan manages to accomplish in amazing fashion. He brings the history of the Nazi genocide to the present-day suburbs of Paris via an Algerian village. Extremism, integration, ghettos, religion, all the elements of that history are here, refashioned to their new context. These are not one-to-one -one comparisons. Those ghettos are not these ghettos. Those massacres are not these massacres. And that genocide is not this genocide. Even as Maurich himself makes the comparisons, uses the same terminology, he understands that the past is the past, the present is the present. He's never trying to claim what happened is happening again. He's trying to understand both what has happened and what is happening, using what is, for him, a common heritage. 
From this, the reader gets that Sansal views history not as a series of repetitions, only poets and writers believe that, but a way of learning new things about the past in the present, showing something old in a new and unexpected way. In fact, this is more than just what history is. This is where the aims of history and the aims of the novel meet. Underlining this is the fact that the best, most vivid writing in this story comes through the voice of Maurich, the no-goodnik, the quasi-thug, the dropout. He's ultimately the bearer of history, the one who brings it forward after it has consumed and destroyed his elder brother. For Paul Berman, the revelation in Boilem Sansal's book was that an author of Sansal's background would look courageously look, as this book and others by Sansal have been banned in his native Algeria, at a historical event that has been suppressed through large parts of the Muslim world, from the Middle East to England, where schools recently dropped the subject from the curriculum after teachers were pressured by parents not to teach it. For Berman, Sansal is the great counterpoint to Ramadan, who, in Berman's view, would ignore inconvenient aspects of history rather than examine them. As a reader, though, I was interested in something different than Berman. I wanted an interesting novel, and in the German Mujahid, I found an excellently written story that is narrated by two strong voices. All in all, I recommend it. I will definitely be looking for other Sansal novels in translation, and perhaps try some in the original French. I wish him well. He seems to live in a dangerous world. Thank you for listening. Next up on Burning Books will be a review of Beryl Bainbridge's Booker Prize winning-ish novel, Master Georgie. Burning Books is part of the Litopia network of podcasts, and you can hear back episodes, subscribe, and reach me there via the email the show button, all by going to litopia.com, spelled the way it sounds, and following the links to Burning Books. I also enjoy getting your tweets, so feel free to send me tweets, nasty and nice. I'm at Burning Books Pod. My thanks to Hakan Ozgan for the music. There are several ways to thank someone. So let's start with the easiest. Teşekkürler. To Peter Cox, executive producer of the show. Vitamins. It's vitamins. Oh my God. And as always, go Jays.